Father God, um, thank you again for this amazing opportunity to come together and to grasp something uh, from you that is sometimes difficult to understand or hard to hear. Um, God, I just thank you again for this opportunity to open up your word and to know your desire for the church, uh, to know what you want for each of us, uh, and to get a glimpse of your plan. God, thank you. Uh, it is humbling to be able to do that. And uh, we just look forward to unpacking what this means today uh, and getting a little bit closer to you. We just pray that you would open our minds and hearts uh, to hear what you have to say and um, to just be closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Um, if you've been with us, you know we're going through the book of Revelation, but we named this study Uncaged. We named it after a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who once said that the word of God is like a caged lion. It doesn't need to be defended. It simply needs to be let out of its cage. And so we took that and we decided that's what we want to do as a church. We really want to open up the word of God and let it loose and let it speak to us. And we thought, what a better place to start than the book of Revelation, because the book of Revelation is the culmination of God's plan. It encompasses the whole of Scripture and completes the story. So it gives us a really great overview of everything. And so we started in chapter 1, where you would normally start, and we see a vision of Christ that John has. And John writes in chapter 1, write the things that you have seen. This is verse 19 in chapter 1. Write the things which you have seen, write the things which are, and the things which are still yet to come. And uh, that last phrase, that are things that are still yet to come, is the Greek phrase metatauta. That will come into play next week. Now, the things that you have seen is the vision of Christ that we got to in chapter 1. And then the things which are are chapters 2 and 3. It's the seven churches. Um, some commentators believe that not only is this these seven churches' representation of local individual churches at the time that Jesus wrote these letters. Um, they also have an individual application for each one of us that we can understand what Jesus finds positive and negative in the churches. Um, that same application would apply to us individually. Now, the other part that commentators, this one's a little more controversial, but it still holds the majority of commentators, are that the seven churches represent seven periods of church history and give us a prophetic outline of what it looks like as we get closer to the ultimate return of Christ. Um, so with that being said, tonight we are approaching the final letter. So if the prophetic timeline is true, this is the final global church. This is what the church would look like at the end when Jesus comes um, to collect his church for the rapture. Um, before the end comes. So it's not an easy letter to get through. It is the longest letter of any of the seven churches. Now the thing that's surprising about that is as we've gone through the seven letters, we have found that the majority of the letters have positive and negative things for each church. There are things that churches are doing well and things that they're not doing well that Jesus is confronting them on. Um, however, 
there are two churches where nothing bad is said about them. Um, one is the Church of Smyrna, the persecuted church, and then the other is the church we talked about last week, the church in Philadelphia. This is the pinnacle of the seven churches, a very mission-minded church, the church with the open door to the world. But there's also two churches that have nothing good said about them. One is the church in Sardis, which we talked about two weeks ago. But even in Sardis, there was at least a little bit of hope in that there were some people who were clinging on to the message of the gospel and, actually, and really following Christ. As we open up the church to the letter to the church in Laodicea, this is the worst of the worst. There's nothing good at all. Not even a little glimpse of hope for people that are clinging on in the church, holding on to the truth. Um, it's rough. So I just want to give you that sort of warning as we get into this letter of what this church is going to look like and what Jesus has to say. It's going to be a tough message. Um, but before we dive into the scripture, let's get a bit of a background on the city and the history of the city um, that Jesus is writing to. Because a lot of this stuff will come into play as we go through the letter, because Jesus uses the history or the circumstance of the city, things that they would recognize in his message to point out what he really needs the church to do. So, the city of Laodicea was founded by Antiochus II. So you might have heard the name Antiochus before. I've talked about Antiochus IV, or Antiochus Epiphanes is his name. Um, the rule of Antiochus leaders um, was of a family line that ruled over part of the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great died. Antiochus II is not the horrible, horrible leader Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV we'll get into as we move further down the book of Revelation. He did some really horrible thing to the Jewish people in the intertestamental period. Um, and we'll talk about that as we move down the line. I don't want to get into that tonight. But Antiochus II, he ruled over a portion of the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great died. And he helped find this city and build this city. And then he named it after his wife, Laodicea. And so they named the city Laodicea. But after the city was built, named after his wife, he divorced her. Um, which I haven't really read in commentaries how that connects to what is being said, but I do think there's a connection. Um, because this city was built up and proud and connected to the king, uh, but then completely rejected um, by the divorce to his wife. But also, uh, spiritually, you'll sort of see how Jesus rejects this church. Um, of the seven cities that we went through, Laodicea is the wealthiest. So they might not be the most important, they might not be the capital, they might not be the center of trade, or the one that leads you know, the road to Rome, but it is the wealthiest city of the seven. They have three major industries, and this will all come into play. Banking, because they had just a lot of minerals, um, and a lot of money, and they were very wealthy, so they had a very... Uh, successful banking industry. They had a very successful wool industry. Um, they actually had uh, this like black wool that was extremely shiny and to the point where it almost looked like plastic when it was put together. It was extremely expensive. It helped make the city wealthy. It was very highly sought after clothing that they were able to make with the wool. So that was the second of their uh, very important industries in Laodicea. And the third was medication. There was something about the mineral deposits in the city of Laodicea that allowed them to create pills that they could send out 
and then you could grind the pills and then mix it with a little water. And they, it was an eye salve that would help relieve eye irritation and issues. So that was a huge booming industry for them. And that will come into play later, so I want you to understand this background. Now, in 60 or 61 AD, there was an earthquake. Again, another earthquake hit one of these cities. But it's a little different in Laodicea, because this earthquake, earthquake, though it devastated the city, they were so wealthy that they actually sent a letter to Rome saying, we don't need your help. We, have, we are fine. We don't need anything from you. And they rebuilt the city on their own with their own wealth without any help from the Roman government. This is part of the Roman Empire. Um, all of these cities are a part of the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire overtook the Greek Empire. Um, so yes. But this city in particular did not need any help because they were so outrageously wealthy. They did have a problem, though. Because the city was so wealthy, it became very populous. And the water sources that they had depleted because it wasn't a heavy water source. So they had to build aqueducts to transport water in to help with the boom of population. Um, and what, what they did was they built underground aqueducts so that they couldn't be attacked by enemies because they were underground, which is very smart, but here's the problem. They, took, they built aqueducts to transport water in from two different cities. One was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for its hot springs. Um, in Turkey, you can actually still go to these hot springs um, and like go, that's actually like a hot tourist, hot, hot tourist um, uh, site because of the hot springs where you can actually go in and experience them and bathe in them and all that. Uh, and there's, it's a big like tourist attraction for them. And then the other city was Colossae. And Colossae was at the base of a mountain range that had ice cold mountain water, always running water. So you had this extremely hot water from the hot springs in, in Hierapolis and this extremely cold water from Colossae, both getting transported in from underground aqueducts into the city of Laodicea. And because of the makeup of the ground and the minerals, when they met, first of all, the water became tepid and lukewarm um, and disgusting. If you've ever had like lukewarm coffee, first of all, coffee's gross either way, but some people like it like hot coffee or iced coffee, but if you have lukewarm coffee, you just want to vomit. Um, so their water was like that. It was just sort of tepid and room temperature and lukewarm. But also had mineral deposits from coming in on these aqueducts that actually the minerals forced you uh, sort of like Ipecac. It was like the first natural, uh, if you drank this water, it would induce vomiting. Uh, so that was an issue that they had. I do want to call out something um, before we get into this scripture. Something, maybe homework for you guys to do this week, or we could do it in small group if you want, um, but it's kind of long. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he pointed out in chapter 4 that once the Colossians had read this letter, they want, he wanted them to share it with the church of Laodicea. So the church of Laodicea had very similar problems to the church of Colossae. And Paul wanted them to read the letter to the Colossians in the Laodicean church. They were only about 10 miles apart, um, so they were in a very similar geographical region, but they had similar problems. So if you read the letter of Colossae as well, you'll understand some of the problems that Laodicea had that were addressed in Colossae, 
The issue is that they were fixed in Colossae, but not in Laodicea. Paul also mentions in chapter 4 of, of the book of Colossians that he actually wrote an epistle to Laodicea. We just have never found it. So, but, that, but he wanted the Laodicean epistle to also be sent to the Colossians because they had similar problems. Um, but I would read the book, the book of Colossians maybe this week after you kind of re- digest this letter to get an understanding of what some of the problems were. I'll tell you right off the bat, the first chapter of Colossians is all about the deity of Jesus because the Colossians and the Laodiceans were denying the deity of Christ. And so the first chapter of Colossians is all about Paul pointing out that Jesus is God. Um, but I'll let you kind of explore from there. Now let's dig in to the letter to Laodicea. Like I said, we're probably going to take a little bit longer tonight. Sorry about that. All right. Verse 14 in chapter 3. And to the, I'm going to read through the whole letter, and then I'm going to break it down. I'm going to do it a little different today. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, or messengers of the church of Laodiceans, write. These things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, or in some translations, ruler of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the, same, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcome and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter is the longest of the seven, uh, and it's amazing that it's the longest because nothing good is said. So let's break it down. One of the things we always want to point out is the title that Christ gives himself. So he says to the messenger of the church of the Laodiceans, write this. These things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. So the title Christ gives himself is the Amen, the true and faithful witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. That term beginning really, in its Greek, really means origin or source. So it's saying that the creation of God came from Jesus. He's saying, I am the origin of creation. Now, this is the second time that this doesn't directly relate to something Jesus said about himself in chapter 1, or to the vision of Christ in chapter 1. So there's something unique about Philadelphia and Laodicea individually because they're the only two of the seven churches that don't have direct representation in the title of Christ to chapter 1 of Revelation. There's something different about those two churches. So the amen, or the true and faithful witness, those two things are really the same. They're saying the same thing. Amen is really an affirmation of truth. So when you, that's why in churches sometimes you'll hear people shout amen at something the preacher says. Because they agree with the truth that's being spouted. They say, amen, this is an affirmation of truth. This is why when I say Michael Jordan is the greatest player in basketball history, you can say amen, because it's true. If you think it's LeBron, you're wrong. 
and you will be excommunicated. Just kidding. But that's the that's what amen means. So Jesus is the truth. He's the source of truth. He's the affirmation of truth. And he's a faithful witness of that truth in his life. And he's also the origin and source of all creation. So that's his title. All right. Now we get into what he has to say to the church of Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That is descriptive. He is completely rejecting the church of Laodicea because of their lukewarm nature. So what does this mean? Right? I've, heard, I've read a few different things. You could read hot as the, you know, the waters that they're referring to were very relaxing and medicinal. They bring comfort. Or you could read into it hot as in the way that Peter acted. Peter was a very zealous, like, on fire for Jesus type of guy. So you think of it in either way, but ultimately it represents something very positive to Jesus. Cold, you can read in, in one of two ways. Refreshing. It's very, the water that they're talking about, or that connects to the city of Laodicea, was very refreshing. You, know, you go out on a hot day, working a long time, a nice cold glass of water would be really good, especially in a town where all you have is lukewarm water. All right, so you could be, either be very seen as refreshing, or if you want to identify this as like a person to link to, to kind of get a glimpse of what does cold look like to Jesus, I think of this as the, as the thief on the cross with Jesus. Right? One of the thieves on the cross with Jesus. He is so aware of his own guilt, and he recognizes his own failure as a person that when he is confronted with Jesus, he sees it. And he asks Jesus to remember him when he goes into his kingdom. Why? Because the man, the man was cold, spiritually cold. And he saw his own wickedness and his own sin. And he understood that, especially in contrast to being in the same situation as Jesus, completely innocent, hanging next to him. And because of his own spiritual coldness and his own sin, and on health, he was, when confronted with Jesus, he was able to recognize. So Jesus is basically saying, if you were on fire for me, that would be awesome. If you were at least so spiritually cold when you were confronted with my presence, you would recognize the need to change. Instead, you're lukewarm. You're tepid. You're not moving. You're standing still, stagnant water. You're in the middle. I'm going to go into this a little bit later. But just understand... Being in the middle is the hardest place to reach people for Jesus. If you're like, I'm a good person, doesn't that mean I've known people all my life and I've talked to them about Jesus, and it's always been the hardest with people who are like really the kind of you know people who would give you the shirt off your back if you needed it, but they don't know Christ. And they would they're the nicest people, the most generous people, and they go, I'm a good person. I hope God would recognize that if He is real, but they don't believe in Him but they recognize their own goodness. Or even extremely religious people who follow, you know, every little legalistic law and tradition and go through and, you know, they, they kneel when they come down the aisle and uh, they make sure they go to church every Sunday, sometimes twice, you know, and they were born in the pews and they, you know, they don't wear, they don't wear pants at church. There's dresses or suits and ties, and they have every little legalistic rule that they could follow, and they make sure they do every single piece of it, uh, only, you know, only having short hair and following every legalistic little tiny rule. 
because they think their works are going to get them God's favor instead of having a real relationship and love for Jesus. And knowing Jesus for who he is, they're more concerned about the rules and the ways I can get to him on my own. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus came to us and invited us to him. He didn't say, these are the steps you have to climb to reach me. Instead, he left heaven and came down to us so that we could go back with him, uh, which is very different from a lot of the overly religious ideals that are in the world. So lukewarm is not a good thing. I will vomit you out of my mouth. I really like how graphic that is because I think it points to the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. Now he says this, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So this is, he's calling them out, something they would understand as the city of Laodicea. You say you have need of nothing because you're so wealthy. You did that with the Romans not that long ago. He said, I don't need your help. I can rebuild it on my own. I have everything I need. And then he says, you don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, those are very interesting things that he says to them. You don't know that you're poor. What was the city of Laodicea known for? Banking. They were, wealth- they were the wealthiest of the cities, but he calls them poor because he's contrasting the material with the spiritual. You might be materially wealthy, but you are spiritually broke. You are poor. You are naked. Now, you might materially have a great wool business. You might be selling clothes left and right that give you a lot of material possessions, but spiritually, you have nothing covering you. The only thing that can protect you from your sin is Jesus' blood covering your sin. If you are spiritually naked, then your sin is fully exposed to God. And that's what he's saying about them. So what you think you have materially, you lack spiritually. And what's the, the last thing? Blind. They were known for eye medicine. And he calls them out and says, you are spiritually blind. But he says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire to give yourself spiritual riches that you may be rich. I counsel you to buy from me white garments that you might be clothed. I would circle white garments. That'll come into play in the next chapter. But it's a representation of purity and righteousness. It's being clothed with Christ's righteousness. You can only get it through faith, being saved through faith by grace in Jesus Christ. And they lack that. And he's saying, put it on so that you don't have the shame of your nakedness, that you might not be revealed. And he says, anoint your eyes with eye cell. So he's saying, the material stuff, don't worry about it, but anoint your eyes with spiritual eye cell so that you can see me, see the thing that you need. So he's using what they have materially and what they're arrogant and proud of and saying you're missing it spiritually. And that's a real gut check to these guys. Now, moving forward. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So he's talking to this group of people who don't really believe in Christ. They don't really have faith in him. They're lacking all of the spiritual pieces. Now, they're boastful, they're proud, they have a building filled with people. They might even use Jesus' name. In fact, they probably did use Jesus' name, but they used it to propagate man's philosophy, man's ideas, and not God's actual true word. They didn't lead people to the true Jesus. They led him to something different based on man's ideas, something they could co-mingle with the world 
They could take the pagan culture around them and create something new and some new age idea, some new modern idea, so they could create a gospel that the, the world would want to hear. But if it's not a gospel that represents the true Christ, then you don't know him. and You are spiritually blind, naked, and poor. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You need the truth. So what can you do? You can repent and know me for real. But he also says, be zealous. Be passionate about who Jesus really is. Do a 180. Go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive and let go of the material wealth and focus on spiritual wealth. And then maybe the most famous verse out of Revelation is verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is Jesus. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. So this verse is used a lot for evangelism. It's talk, you know, they use it as Christ is knocking at the door of your heart and he does it with every person, but he's outside of the door. You have to let him in. Now, I think application-wise, that's probably an accurate statement, but it's not what is actually being said in the context here. So that verse has been misappropriated, even though I think the general idea is still accurate. But the truth is, what is being stated here is Jesus is not in this church. Jesus is not in the church of Laodicea. They haven't let the true Jesus in. He's standing outside, begging them to let him in. Begging them to let the true message in, so that people can truly know him. And he's standing out there knocking, but everybody's letting their comfort keep him out. But if someone would let him in, they would, invite, they would be invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They would be invited to dinner with him. And we'll get into some of that later on. But the point is, if you would open the door and understand the true message, what the Bible really says about Jesus, then you would be saved. And you would be with me. And you'd get to have dinner be at the marriage supper of the Lamb with me. And here we go. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Circle that. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Jesus is saying to the overcomer, if you do open that door and let me in, then you will be with me on the throne. You will rule with me when I rule, which is the ultimate salvation. It's letting go of our past, putting on Christ's righteousness, being the body of Christ, and ruling alongside him when Christ rules in the millennial kingdom, which we will get to in Revelation 19 and 20. And then, like he finishes every letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Meaning this isn't unique to Laodicea. While the entire Laodicean church might be letting Jesus down, this letter needed to be sent to all the churches and to be read in all of the churches because this may convict somebody who needs to hear it in any church because it's not only meant for the local church. It's meant for all of the churches. And so we discussed the background of the city, of the city that Jesus was writing to at that time and how it related to what he was saying, which means we understand the local church at the time Jesus was writing to it. Now, some of the same application to that church moves on to us as individuals. If we don't know the true message of Christ, if we don't know the true Jesus, we need to. We need to repent of that and then be zealous and passionate about understanding the true nature and the true message of what the Bible really says about Jesus. Because this isn't the first time Jesus has said that he hates false doctrine. 
He mentioned it a couple of times in other churches when he talked about the Nicolaitans. When scripture is twisted, when man's ideas are added to it, or man's philosophy are put into it and taught differently than it's supposed to be taught, Jesus hates it. So this is why he is pointing this out. Now the last piece of this is where does this put us in the prophetic timeline? So we, we know the local church, we know the, the, indiv- the individual practices of it, we know the title of Christ. If, this is, if there is, as the commentators put, a prophetic timeline to this, where does this church fall in history? This is the final church. Right? This is the church that would exist on the world. Now last week we talked about the Church of Philadelphia. And I mentioned that I actually think that the Church of Philadelphia will exist alongside the Church of Laodicea. Because Jesus said, the door is open. What I open, no one can shut. And what I shut, no one can open. And I think him shutting the door will be the rapture of the church. Personally. That's my own opinion. But this is where I get this. I think that Philadelphia and Laodicea are going to exist next to each other as the final two churches in the church history before the return and the rapture of the church. I think this because of Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins. And it's a reference to the Jewish wedding. Now, there's ten virgins. They have their lamps, and five of them didn't bring extra oil, and they, were, they didn't expect the bridegroom to take so long coming to collect them. And they ran out of oil. And oil is representative of the Holy Spirit. So five of the virgins, five of the or bridesmaids, that's easier to understand what's happening here, five of the bridesmaids run out of oil, and they ask the other five who were prepared and who were ready for the, the bridegroom to come back at any time, even if it took longer than expected, they were ready. Those five were ready. And they said, can we borrow some of your oil? And they said, no, we're prepared. You're not Go to the shop, get your own, and come back if you're not ready, if you're not prepared. So they do. The five who were unprepared leave, and when they leave to go get more oil, the bridegroom comes back and collects the bridesmaids. And those five who were prepared are ready, and they go back to the father's house for the wedding feast. So I think this is a picture, in the end, of the Church of Philadelphia, who is ready. They're mission-oriented. They persevere. The door is open them, is open to them until Jesus shuts it. And Jesus shuts it when he comes back and collects them. The church of Laodicea had no oil, no Holy Spirit, because they didn't know the true message of Christ. And when Jesus came back to collect his church, they were left behind because they were unprepared. So that's how I see that. Now, I do want to read one more passage to you, because if this is the case, then this will make what was written to the letter of Laodicea in the letter of Laodicea, make more sense. Paul wrote about what would happen in the church in the last days. So if the Laodicean church is the last day's church, then in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, he writes this. But know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. This is the first five verses. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. 
So if this is very closely related to the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, having a form of godliness, recognizing God, being willing to talk about God as long as it fits into your philosophical box that's brought in by the world, but not based on the true Christ from Scripture only. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power, and only being interested in money and yourself and how you can gain pleasure or comfort in this world, then that would be what the church would look like at the end. That's the, the prophetic version of the Laodicean church. So I just wanted to share that with you so you got a picture of if the prophetic timeline thing is real, we notice that there's something different about Philadelphia and Laodicea, and that the title of Christ is not exclusively represented from chapter 1 in Revelation. So there's something different about them, something that links them. There's nothing good about one and nothing positive about the other. And if that links to the parable of the ten virgins, you see how one church is ready, one church is not. And I would much rather be ready for Jesus I would much rather know the true Christ and the true message of Scripture than a false gospel based on man's ideas. So that's the picture of Laodicea. Now next week, we will start getting into prophecy and the future, what is to come. And that's really exciting. And there's a lot of questions and things that are confusing about the rest of Revelation. I'm excited to help you understand that. But I do want to say chapters 2 and 3 are the most relevant to our lives and the things where we could gain the most application and the most understanding of what our church should look like, what our life should look like, and what we should want to be as believers. Because it gives us a differing opinion from what the world thinks is successful to what Jesus thinks is successful. And so I would dwell on those things and help you know, pray over that, especially in this season as we're praying for Parkminster. So let's pray together uh, before we head into the small groups. Father God, thank you again for an opportunity to talk about you, to talk about your plan. It's not easy to talk about the fact that you're not only love, you are also justice, and you do judge. And um, with the Church of Laodicea, you clearly came in judgment. And uh, God, help us to see what we can change in ourselves so that we don't represent that, but rather represent the positives, like the Church of Philadelphia. God, help us understand what our next step should be for ourselves what our next step should be as a church so that we reflect what you see as a positive. And God, help us to know you more, to know you better, to understand your plan, and to love you with zeal and passion, and to seek you every day. In Jesus' name.